the uh, Wibbles had a book last night, we caught up with them a bit, uh, had a book made by their daughter about uh, her time in Chad. Um, and uh, they showed us a photo of a, of a church, a typical church over there, and there were rows, there were pews. And the pews were literally two bricks in a row, laid out in a row, and the guys were sitting there, had their knees up to their, um, up to their chins, and they had their Bible sitting on like that. And I said, how come they could have put another couple of rows of bricks, make it a little bit higher, but that's the way they probably like to, uh, to sit down, so... Enjoy the chairs that we have. Don't enjoy them too much because sometimes uh, you know you go to a different church and there are nice cushions in the seats and it's nice and comfortable. You say, oh, "Aren't these chairs beautiful?" They're not. It's a trap. Don't trust them. Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse seventeen and eighteen. <clears throat> Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Let's pray before we get into this message. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the year that's passed, and we thank you, Lord, for the beginning of a new year. We might glorify your name, that we might do your will and, and grow into the image of your only begotten Son. And this morning I pray that we'd make a good start. We pray that, uh, that our hearts would be open to your word, that your spirit would continue to teach us your ways and your truth. That we might be transformed by it. That our lives might be more and more fruitful in the things you would have us to bear fruit in. That your name might be glorified. Thank you once again for this time. We thank you for this place. We thank you for the salvation we have that we share and the fellowship that comes as a result. Lord, we just pray now that uh, our focus and our hearts will be all on you because you deserve it all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In 1982, an Anglican preacher named John Stott, I don't normally quote Anglicans, to be honest with you, uh, said... Seldom, if ever, in its long history has the world witnessed such a self-conscious revolt against authority. Never in the history of mankind has a revolt or a, or a, uh, a challenge to authority been, been in this world as much as it is today. And I'll, just to make the point, when I say these words, rule, Authority, submit, obey. What feelings that conjure up in you? Does your heart warm to those words? Are you, are you, when, you, when you hear the word ruling over you, when you hear the word authority over you, when you hear the word submit to authority and obey, in our culture, in our day, those words aren't very nice words. They often bring, uh, they often make people's the hair on people's neck stand up on end. People are afraid of authority. They're afraid of rule. They're afraid to submit. <clears throat> and it's interesting when you have conversations with un- with uh, unbelievers, especially about things such as marriage vows. It was brought up in a conversation just recently with me that that this fellow went overseas and uh, and he and he heard and he went into the the, the deep south. 
of America where all the redneck, you know, the Bible Belt Christians are. And he goes, oh, we went to a wedding and, uh, and it was amazing. He goes, the vows were amazing. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, there was, she said, I promise to love, honour and obey. And he thought that was rather, rather interesting. I thought, how can you in this day have, a, have a, a vow from a woman to a man saying to obey? Interesting. No, obedience, submission and authority are, are pretty much treated with disdain in our society and most of the modern world because the rights of the individual are seen as supreme and the rights of the individual don't seem to gel too much with submission to authority. Our society has downgraded its view on authority and this is reflected in every sphere of our, of our society, in government, in, uh, in, in family and in church. The government in our day, think about this, the government, we just had a, a leader die in Northern Korea, right? And you see mass numbers of people wailing, um, huge demonstrations, that sort of stuff over there. People out, you know, uh, showing, venting their grief at this leader who we, most of the modern world, thinks was an absolute psychopath. Um, but yet his people cried for him, even though he starved, literally, millions of them. <clears throat> but in our, our society, our government is normally held up to what? Ridicule, doesn't it? People normally, we spend most, when we speak about government, most of the time it's actually to ridicule them. <clears throat> because we have very little tolerance and respect for positions of power. The leaders in our society seem, <clears throat> are seen with a huge amount of scepticism, cynicism, and are normally only seen in the light, in the light of their broken promises and, you know, and their desire to hold on to power and those sorts of things. But the same goes for the police force. The judiciary. I mean, police today are often more the victims of violence and assault than people in, and normal people in society. That wasn't the case 30 years ago. The difference is today that, that younger, the younger generations and new generations now are pushing the boundaries of their challenge to authority. Same thing in the home. How, how, how much do you think that honour thy mother and father is actually lived out in the household, the average household? No, it's not. Even the Christian household, it's rarely ever lived out. Honour thy mother and father has no, modern, no place in the modern family. Fathers in the media, how, often, how are fathers normally portrayed in the media? Bumbling fools. If you look at most of the commercials, most of the, the TV series and that, they portray fathers as idiots, really. And mothers are portrayed as having to hold up the family and then challenge, are encouraged to challenge their husbands for their, their place on their right to be the head of the household. Indeed, even the word partner in a marriage has been hijacked by our society. The word partner to include unlawful unions as well. And I specifically didn't use the word gay. Because gay, the word gay, has already been hijacked a long time ago from meaning something that was just happy to something now that's 
totally different. The resistance to the authority has spread very much to the church as well. You might say, well, what's resist- what's isn't that isn't authority seen in the church? Well, no, not, not very often, to be honest with you. I'm not saying it's true for our church, but you don't see authority in the church these days or submission to authority. <clears throat> and you can tell that by the huge amount of people that church hop. People jump from church to church to church to church. They're not bound to a church anymore, so therefore they can't be disciplined in a church anymore. Mm. Pastors are not held in very high esteem in our society. And people think of pastors and priests and men of the clergy. What's the first thing, the thought that most people you think comes to their mind? Sorry? Bad. And for those who do go to church and see past all that, their pastor is seen merely as a, as a, a marriage of convenience, let's say, along with the church. In other words, as long as the church and the pastor give me what I want, as long as he's, you know, he's, he pays enough attention to me and does all the good things to me that he should do, as long as he doesn't push me too far with the preaching, as long as he doesn't, you know what I mean? As long as he fits into my picture of what a pastor should do and should say, then I'm fine. But as soon as I'm no longer a centre of your attention, as soon as he does something that's, that's, that I'm not going to like, as soon as a bigger or a better or more entertaining church comes along, or a more charismatic pastor comes along, I'm out of here. These symptoms are the result of a challenge to authority in our day. In the light of this, we come to this verse today. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Just to be honest with you, the, 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 the word rule and authority and submission is so difficult, it's actually difficult for me to preach this message today. Because even in my mind, there's a struggle going on about preaching this message to you. Because it's a message about you submitting to me. Scary, isn't it? Now, the Greek word for submit, the Greek word for obey and submit, you know what they mean? Obey and submit. (laughs) They're exactly the same. There's no difference. Obey and submit. The two words implies going along with directions or commands. Whereas submission focuses really on an attitude. You can, be out, you can outwardly obey, can't you? You can say, I'm going to do it, all right. But then on the inside, you're not submitting, eh? You can obey outwardly, but not submit inwardly. Submission implies some sort of a spirit, some sort of a, a spirit of cooperation and trust. That you trust the leader, the person who has the authority over you, that he wants the best for you, so you go along with it. You trust the intention. Now this verse, even though we've mentioned uh, the challenge to authority in our culture, doesn't, isn't talking about human government, not talking about the family, not talking about other systems of authority like the, the courts or the, or the police force. This verse singles out the authority vested in the leadership of the church. Pure and simple. It only speaks about the leadership in a church. 
primarily the pastor of your church or the pastor. Some, some large church have a number of pastors in different, different roles. Just to, just, to, just to show you how, what the, where that comes from, turn back to Hebrews 13 verse 7. Just a few, just a few verses back. Just to clarify that. Hebrews 13 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you. Same words, right? Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. That wasn't the government, that wasn't the police, that wasn't your teachers at school. The only people that fit that particular category are your pastors. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 for a moment. We'll look at a passage and we'll see how important submission to authority was to Paul. First Corinthians 16 verse 10. Now Paul speaks to the Corinthians here and he reminds them, he mentions a few names. So keep, keep, a, keep at the back of your mind which names come up, okay? He says in verse 10, Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I, look, uh, for I look for him with the brethren, as touching our brother Apollos. I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. How many, how many names do you hear there? We've got Timothy, he mentioned the Polos, he mentioned the house of Stephanus, who he says were addicted to the ministry. Isn't that, you, never hear, you rarely hear the word addicted these days in a positive point. But it says they were addicted to serving in the church. Well, wouldn't it be great if everyone was addicted to serving in the church? Addicted. It means you can't help yourself. That'd be great. And I think every Christian should be addicted to service, to ministry. But this particular passage, Paul reminds the Corinthians that when Timothy comes down to you, and Timothy was a young man... When Apollos comes down to you, when you see the house of Stephanus, submit yourself to all of them. Why? Because Paul says, they're doing my work. And if you see authority vested in me, then you'll see the the authority in them because they're doing the same work, which is teaching you the word of God. See, there are levels of authority as well. The ultimate authority is God, isn't he? But then God has put under shepherds under him who then have the responsibility to oversee the flock under them, each of them. And Paul is saying the same thing here. Paul is saying, well, his master was the Lord, who told him to go and spread the word. But he also had co-laborers with him. He didn't say he was over them, did he? He said they were his co-laborers. They worked with him. In other words, in the ministry, in the pastorship or evangelism, there isn't a hierarchy, really. 
Because we're all under the Lord. We're all responsible directly to the Lord for that which we teach, that which we do. And Paul reminds the Corinthians, especially about Timothy, he says, don't despise him. Don't belittle him. See that he comes to you without fear. Why would he have to go there with fear? Because Timothy was a young man. And Timothy had problem, had a problem with people actually taking him seriously. So the first thing people would do is look at this young whippersnapper coming in here telling me what to do. And Paul says, don't despise him. He's taken a huge responsibility on his shoulders. He has the authority, he, Paul's authority in him. Same thing went for Apollos and for Stephanus. Paul exhorts all of them to submit themselves to their spiritual leaders. So why should we submit? Why? There's got to be a reason, doesn't there? Well, it says in that verse, For they watch for your souls. They watch for your souls. The word, that word keep, or they keep watch for your souls, they watch, that word watch, is a really strong word. It pictures a shepherd who watches over his flock, looking out for wolves that might be coming in. And it pictures the same picture as someone who can't even go to sleep because the wolves come by night. So it's a laborious, difficult task. The word is also used in the military sense for soldiers guarding their post, keeping vigilance, watching for the enemy who, who, might be, who might be arriving to cause them harm. And here is the thing, watch for your souls, which is exactly the same context. When you picture watch for your souls, picture those two, two things. Spiritual leaders must maintain an alertness and a discernment in attending to their duties with the church. In other words, our job is to watch the church, to watch that nothing evil comes in, to watch and see that there's no disunity starting to form and those sorts of things. And the first thing that we're called to do is to watch for dangerous doctrine and false teaching. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. We'll see Paul... Addressing the church as well, another church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. And he's speaking not to the not to the people in the church, he's speaking to the leaders here, okay? Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise. That was the leaders speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch. And remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. The early church wasn't a, a wonderful place to necessarily be. The conflicts they had back then were probably even more detrimental and more difficult than the problems we have now. Our doctrinal stances are all, are all settled. We have a lot of things that have 
through history have been sort of sorted out. Anything that was sort of grey, most of those things have been sorted out. But in the early church, you had people vying for power. It was just beginning to plant the churches. Paul was going around spending a year here, three years there, two years there, planting churches. And as soon as he'd go and thinking that the church was set up and they'd set up leadership, all of a sudden they'd have a, a huge fight and someone would try to take the authority in the church. There was a lot of things happening. But most importantly, he points out here, is the thing of doctrine. Because doctrine can destroy a church from the inside out. If the church teaches the wrong thing, then every person is affected by it. Because what you believe will affect what you do. What you believe will affect the way you think and what you do, ultimately. So church leaders need to keep their finger on the pulse, as it were, of doctrine and teaching. And I'll tell you something. Today, when I said that it was more difficult then, no, not necessarily, because there's been a thousand other heresies that have actually popped up during the last 2,000 years. Brethren, there are more heresies, half-truths, pseudo-doctrines today than ever before in history. We have more sects and cults and, and, and everything else that goes along with it, all with the name Christian, that have no semblance to Christian at all. And people are fooled by them as well. So, first job is to watch for dangerous doctrines and false teaching. The second is to keep an eye on deceitful behaviour in the church. Deceitful behaviour. Um, in in the, the third epistle of John, there's a warning about diatrophies. Right? It's only a little letter, John. It's only one little chapter. But there's a warning that says that diatrophies was doing some nasty things. And diatrophies tried to grab the leadership of the church and become its dictator. And while he, he seemed to have a, a form of good words, he was actually very self-centred and full of pride. He sought to use the church to fulfil his own lust for power, and the Apostle John exposes that sort of behaviour and warns them about it. So spiritual leaders have to keep an eye on deceitful behaviour and see what's going on in the church. And the third thing is that we're meant to keep an alert, or be alert, to divisive Actions. Ever heard of a church split before? Really? You did? You've heard of a church split? Well, church splits are very common these days. There are times when I wish you could look, even the, the history that we've been through in our church, in our last church, um, and even the church that I first went to, I wish you could just close your eyes and say, well, there's not going to be any church, you know, that's not going to affect us over here. But I'd be fooling myself. Because as the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger, new people come in, new ideas come in, new thoughts come in. People don't like the way you've put that sign up over there and that sign should be over there instead of over there. And, you know, we shouldn't have a speaker on a stand because that might be a little bit too, you know... And then that should be over there. And, you know, those blue hymn books aren't really good. It should be the red ones that we're using. And people make doctrinal issues about all types of things and then begin to push an agenda in the church. Ever heard of that before? Well, that's not uncommon these days. So the church, what, my third job is to watch out for divisive actions and divisive talk because there are things worth fighting about. There are things worth not... There are certain things not worth fighting about. But some people like to make a fight about them. And some people like to start to grow and infest and, and, and win people to their side. 
We should have, you know, this carpet's no good. We should have a, an orange carpet going down the middle. You know what I mean? So we're going to form an orange carpet brigade. There are other things, many other things you can talk about with regard to that. I wish I could just close my eyes and say, you know, there's no divisiveness, but that's not the reality. We will, in the future, face divisiveness. We will face people that come in the church and want to change the church. And spiritual leaders have the responsibility to stand firm against divisiveness, rebuking, admonishing and even leading in the way to exercise discipline from stopping the church from being split apart. In, in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, it says, A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he, is, that, that, that is, so that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. How popular, how nice you reckon those three things are to do in the church? Watching for false teaching and trying to stamp it out or keep it out. Watching for deceitful behaviour and looking for divisiveness. Those things aren't easy to do. They're not nice things to do because they only ever require a negative response. But that's part of the spiritual leader's job. To keep watch over your souls. The beauty of being in a church... And sometimes we, we, people get this impression that being out of a church or not being a member is almost as good as being or better than being in a church. You know what I mean? Because I'm free. Woo-hoo. But being in a church has huge advantages. Because being in a church means that I'm responsible for your soul. I'm responsible to watch over you and to protect you. I'm not responsible for those who are outside of our church. I'm not. I am meant to look after all of you and anything that threatens the unity or the doctrinal position of our church, I need to be there. I need to be aware of. And the church should be a safe haven for all of you. A place where you come where you don't have to worry about bad things happening. Where you don't have to worry about false doctrine being taught to you. Do you understand? It should be a safe place. And I think in in, in most cases, I think faith is a, a safe place. If it isn't, please come and tell me. If you think there are things that are threatening our church today, I'd I'd like you to come and talk with me. But by and large, I think that our church is a very safe place to be. But keep this in mind. That though the church seems really happy and very calm, it's a bit like a duck on water. On the top of the water, the duck moves along at a nice, even pace. But underneath the water, there's a lot of things happening under there. There's a lot of flapping of, uh, of, <laughs> of feet going on, which you don't necessarily see, and that's good that you don't see all those things that happen. It's my job to see that those things happen and those things are taken care of. The same is true really in any church. There are any number of things that are going on in the church that a pastor, is important, it's important to keep their eye on and sometimes to intervene in before error comes into the church. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, because Peter throws another couple of things that a pastor is meant to do, which we'll just close with.
So while Paul mentioned watching for your souls, Peter, Peter says another couple of things. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you. Take the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Peter says three things that a pastor needs to do. He encourages the elders or pastors to do in a church. Feed the flock. How do you feed a flock? With what? With food, which is the word of God. So the first Really, the first job of a pastor is to feed the flock with the word of God. First. Second, he says, oversee the flock. Now, that's our, that's our, our word, really, watching. Overseeing is watching. Okay? Making sure that the, that the flock is protected from evil influences. That's a governance and protection. And the third thing he says that a pastor needs to be is, right at the end, be in samples to the flock. Be an example to the flock. That means being a model citizen. Model citizen. Being a source of light. Being a source of allowing yourself to be public with your life. So when people look at you, they say, oh, that's what I'm meant to be doing. In terms of faithfulness, in terms of commitment, in terms of my speech, in terms of the way I conduct myself both here and outside of here. Integrity, honesty, love. Compassion, patience, mercy. All those things, all those things that, that the Bible says that a, that a godly man needs to be, that's what I have to be. And if I'm not that, then I'm not being an example to you. So they're the three things. So Peter exhorts his elders, or the elders, to feed the flock, oversee the flock with a willing spirit, and lead by example. Now what does authority really mean? And this is where it goes back to sanctification because we're continuing this whole idea of sanctification, aren't we? This is the final message on sanctification, by the way. This is our, our we're, we're, fin- we're starting the new year with an end, with an end of, a, uh, of a particular topic, which I don't mind, which I think is okay. But a sanctified person, a person who is sanctified, set apart to God, understands authority. They understand what it means to submit. They understand God's plan there. And very simply, you should obey godly leaders because they keep watch over your souls. Because we are accountable, the Bible says. We are accountable to God for you and what we do with you. God has constituted various levels of authority under his ultimate authority. And the purpose of authority is not to, as Peter says, not to um, uh, glory in it, make money from it, um, uh, you know, lord over everyone. No, the purpose of authority and all authority is to protect and to bless. That's the purpose of authority. So you are blessed and protected. God, is, God established the authority of civil governments. It's God who authorises civil governments and says they're a good thing, even though most of us might not agree with them. Because a civil government is meant to protect and bless law-abiding citizens from those who aren't law-abiding citizens. 
A, a civil government, if it does its job, takes care of criminals, foreign invaders, and anything else that threatens the consistency or the safety of their people. If they do their job well, to the extent that they're not um, corrupt or anything like that, their people can dwell in peace and safety. In the family, God appoints a husband to have authority under Christ in order to protect and bless his wife and children. That's the purpose of authority. The husband is to provide to his family protection from any physical and spiritual danger, to bless his family by leading them in the ways of God. An ungodly husband who uses his authority for his own selfish ends is abusing the authority that God has entrusted to him and he's answerable to who? To God himself. In the church, God has appointed elders or pastors to oversee the flock. They aren't to abuse that authority, to lord it over the church, but they are meant to feed the church, watch over the church, bless the church, protect the church. Be examples for the church. On every level, the authority that's invested in either in the civil government or in the church or in the family is never ultimate authority. It's never the ultimate authority. I'm not a law unto myself. I don't create the laws. God is the ultimate authority. And everyone who has or is in place in a particular authority structure that God has created is answerable to God at the end of the day. Every leader has to give an account. You might think, oh, that's not much of a big deal. Once you're saved, you're saved, aren't we? We're all saved. Eh. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. 1 Timothy 5, 19 says, Against an elder... Now, whenever you see elder, it's the same word as pastor. Receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. All right? So what is that guarding against? Gossip against your pastor. And in verse 20, it says, Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. So, that's speaking of your pastor. So if your pastor is found to be in sin or doing something wrong... Okay, if two or th- if you have an accusation and you've heard it from two or three other witnesses, you're meant to go to your pastor, and if he hasn't, if it's true, he needs to be rebuked in front of the church. How's that for her? And look how he finishes the verse: that others also may fear. I'll leave it at that. The church is meant to follow pastoral leadership. The church is meant to submit itself to godly pastors, not ungodly pastors. If the pastor is teaching you something that's not scriptural, against doctrine, or not the way God wants, you aren't to submit. I'll be more specific what it means and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to blindly follow leaders without question. Aren't you happy about that? 
A pastor's teaching and advice should always be held up to the standard of Scripture. This is why Scripture exhorts the congregation to keep watch and be vigilant as well. I love people who come and ask me questions after the sermon on a Sunday morning. I like it. Some of you might think, oh, you know, I'm bothering him. No. If there's something that doesn't make sense to you, if there's something that doesn't seem to fit, come and ask me. Guess what? I'm not the Pope. I'm not infallible. I have been known to make a mistake here and there. So when is the church responsible to obey and submit? Obviously when the leaders of the church teach God's truth, especially on essential doctrines and commands of the faith. The Bible says that the church is to submit. It's not the pastor's authority, it's God's authority that you're submitting to. And then it says you should really be obeying your godly leaders and church leaders because if you cause them grief, you cause yourself grief. How does that mean? How does that work? Well, because we're watching out for yourselves, if you cause us grief, are we able to better watch for your souls or less able to watch for your souls? No, because if we're worrying ourselves, grieving over rebellion in the church and, and, and people going in their own different directions and doing their own thing and not following the Lord's commands, then it becomes difficult for us to watch. How easy is it for a pastor whose sheep are running in all different directions to keep them under control? That's the picture. If the sheep are together and moving in the same direction, the pastor can watch the sheep. But when sheep start going in all different directions, who do you chase first? Because believe it or not, um, I've tried it, I'm not omnipresent. I can't be everywhere at the same time. I can't be doing every or seeing everyone at the same time. I can't be everywhere and, and know everything. So it's unprofitable for you in God's design to grieve your pastor. God's designed authority is to protect and to bless. If you disobey those who proclaim God's word to you, then you are disobeying God at the end of the day. Which has consequences in itself. Again, it's implicit, let me repeat, that leaders who are conscientious men who are walking with God are the ones that you obey. But spiritual children, like physical children, can be a source of great joy and grief. It's the same. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. We'll look at a few verses. We'll read the first one, and I've got a few more, but I'll just read those out to you. First Thessalonians 3.9 says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Is he, is he joyful about his children there, Paul? His spiritual children? Yeah, he is. Because he goes, how else can I thank God for you? He's obviously very, very grateful for them. 
But the Apostle John also wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in the truth. But then Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, when he was agonising over why they were following the Judaizers, why they were following the law rather than the Spirit, says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ is formed in you. He was travailing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Why would he write with grief and tears? Because he was crying for his children that were going astray. The stuff he was seeing happening in the church of Corinth broke his heart. Now, Paul wasn't concerned about his own welfare and reputation, but about their welfare and about God's reputation. If you cause your pastor to groan or to cause him grief, it's because they know that your disobedience will damage both you and the name of Christ. That causes the greatest grief to a pastor. Thus, if you obey godly leaders because they keep watch for your souls, and because you cause, if you cause them grief, you cause yourself grief. And, and pastors are meant to exhort with patience and gentleness. Sometimes I have, I have good patience and gentleness, I think. Sometimes an overabundance of patience and gentleness. We understand as pastors that people, sometimes when they hear a truth from God, don't immediately absorb it. Is that a shock to you? No. Sometimes people wrestle with a particular idea in the Bible for a long time. They wrestle with it, they wrestle with it, they wrestle with it, until they give up wrestling, then they just obey we understand that's what happens with people. So it takes time to grow. Spiritual maturity, like physical and emotional maturity, take time. But on the listening end, your end, if you want to grow in Christ, the Bible says that you need to bear with my exhortations. Bear with them. Don't shrug off the things you don't necessarily just agree with that you don't like, that aren't palatable to you, go back to the scripture first and see if they're true. Be like the Bereans. If something sounds a little bit, oh, no, I can't be bothered doing that, go back and check it first. But if I'm telling you the truth and you check it and then you choose not to obey, who are you disobeying? God, not me. A pastor did some research a number of years ago and found a very interesting thing. That very few people, if not nearly all people, do not prepare in any significant way for church on a Sunday morning. They don't prepare themselves almost at all. Now, why am I saying that? Well, very few people ever pray that their heart would be ready to receive the sermon. Very few people ever prayed for their pastor in preparing the sermon. Very few people growed for the spiritual growth of their brothers and sisters during a Sunday morning when we get together and we learn the most significant truths. I think it's true all around. If you want to bear with the word of exhortation that I bring you each week, I would encourage you to pray for your own heart first, to be receptive to God's word. Pray for me. 
as I prepare God's message and I preach it, that I would be faithful to Scripture as I preach. Spend some time during the week going over the previous sermon. You know, sometimes when you prepare a big meal for someone, you can't eat it all at once, can you? And I'm very aware that on Sunday mornings, I give you a lot. It's a meal that almost would last you for a whole week if you spent time digesting it. But let me ask you a question. When you leave the doors on a Sunday morning after you hear a sermon, how much time do you spend digesting it? How much time do you spend going back for that second and third bite? Oftentimes we, we want to have more and more and more and, and oftentimes we have multiple lessons that we're trying to learn during the week. We have our own devotions. We have devotions on Wednesday night. We have sermons on Sunday morning. Then we have other things that we're learning as well. Let me ask you a question. How much are you consuming and how much are you actually digesting? Because if you can't consume the message on a Sunday morning, what's your digestive system like? So let me encourage you to pray before Sunday morning, to pray for me, to prepare for yourself and your heart for the message. The effectiveness of my preaching doesn't depend on how well I preach. It doesn't depend on how, how wonderful the words I say, how eloquent I am. Really, it depends on how well you listen to Even Jesus, the greatest preacher we ever had, exhorted his audience in Luke 8, 18, and he says, Take heed, therefore, how you hear. Take heed how you hear. Because someone can hear, but never listen. So I beseech you to pray for me. You need to pray for godly leaders. And Paul asks a number of times. In Romans chapter 15 he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Paul prays for protection that he might be delivered from those who are against him and trying to attack the gospel. In Ephesians 6.9 he says, And for me, that pray for me that the utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul prayed, asked his, uh, the church people to actually pray for him, so he might preach. Colossians 4.3 says, With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. He also asked for prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Philippians 20, uh, verse 22, 2 Corinthians 2.16 and other places. Can I make one point concerning those, those scripture passages? If Paul needed prayer, probably the greatest evangelist and one of the greatest preachers of, of the church, then I need all the more. If Paul needed that much prayer to make his ministry effective, then I need it more. There are many things that I would like to do, but I find myself weak to do. There are some things I know the Lord would have me focus on more, but I'm torn between two or three other things. There are situations that require strong leadership. Remember I said to you I have an abundance of gentleness and patience? Sometimes there, sometimes. 
Spiritual leadership requires a strong hand. Sometimes I find I'm not strong enough. There are things to be said, and sometimes I forget to say them. Or I'm too weak to say them. There are a multitude of decisions that are made in the ministry each and every week. And sometimes, to be quite honest with you, it's a very lonely job. The ministry's not all it's cracked up to be. It can be a very lonely job. There are times when you're overjoyed to see the fruit in people's lives as they grow and they change and you see the fruit of the, of the sermons and the, the ministries of the church. There are other times when you walk away absolutely dismayed and are down for days because you think, what is going on? I thought that person had overcome that problem. On one of his visits to the continent, Charles Spurgeon met an American minister who said, I've long wished to see you, Mr Spurgeon, and to put one or two simple questions to you. In our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough to give me your own point of view? And after a moment's pause, Spurgeon replied, My people pray for me. That was it. He didn't say that he was eloquent. He didn't say that he was well-educated. He didn't say all the other things. He said, my people pray for me. Prayer is very important. Although I don't have Spurgeon's gifts or power, I would ask the same for you, that you pray for me. And submission is something that we're all learning in our Christian walk, even me. There are things in my life that I know I haven't submitted to the Lord yet. And I'm still wrestling with those things. Because I know that the scripture says my heart is deceitful and submission is a test of the will. Will I submit and obey in this matter? Will I submit and obey in another matter? Will I fail? This is the good fight that reveals where your faith is. Because every decision you make reveals where you're at. My faith is really, at the end of the day, about how much I trust God with my life. And even though I don't understand all the bits and pieces, am I willing to follow him even though I don't understand where I'm stepping? If, God's, if, if, if I'm in total darkness and God says, take a step to the right, am I willing to take a step to the right if I can't see where I'm stepping? But... If I submit myself to God, if I obey him, if I let God be God and me just be me, then I can find peace and freedom in that surrender. I know that through experience. And that's what I hope that you will find as well. That surrendering to God, that obeying him and submitting is actually a great place of freedom. We mentioned this on Wednesday evening. We don't know all the details of God's plans. Who does? Anyone here knows, knows all, all the details of God's plan for your own life? No. We don't even know the, the, the details in our own lives, what's going on half the time. What's affecting us, what's not affecting us, what's going to come up next. And the point I'm trying to make here is there is great freedom in allowing God to be God and trusting him in all things, surrendering to him. 
And it's a bit like salvation. Did you earn your salvation? No. Did you work for it? No. How much freedom is there in knowing that Jesus did it all? There's huge freedom in that. There is freedom and there is peace because it's not me that won it. It's not me that maintains it. It's his responsibility. He has the authority. All I have to do is simply obey. There is great freedom in that. That's why God's authority blesses. Part of that submission means to be willing to serve. And that's done through the ministries of your local church. That's why I've given you a list over there. And don't treat that list as a fixed list because that list is only at the moment what we think is going on. But submission means to willingly serve because God commands that. Your willingness to serve in the church is a sign of your willingness to obey the Lord, a sign of your submission, your humbleness. So my desire for you in 2012 is to live a sanctified life. We've finished a series on sanctification. And it is, I think, going to make a CD of, of that particular topic available on one CD for anyone who wants to hear the sermons again. But I challenge you, as you, we're entering now into 2012 with a new, new renewed desire to live a sanctified life for God, to, to be willing to go outside the camp, to go outside of this society and its norms and its, and its preconceptions and its ways of doing things, go outside the camp, be ready to, be face, to face ridicule. Take up your cross and follow Christ. To seek that great city that God's preparing for us now. To, to have your heart in heaven rather than be stuck here on this earth. To offer sacrifices to God of thanks and praise, good works and communication, giving. And to finally submit in church to those who watch for your souls. For one day, we have to give an account for you, each and every one of you. I'll close you with this. I'll close soon with this. Now, the God of peace, these aren't my words, by the way. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.